0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Our guest today is John Waldron, Goldman Sachs president and chief operating officer. John joined Goldman back in 2000, and prior to his current role, he was co-head of our investment banking division. On this episode, we'll be diving into what it's really like to be president and COO of Goldman Sachs, some of the key strategic initiatives John's focused on, some advice to young people, and much, much more. John, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So talk a little bit about your background, fascinating career. What was the path to this job?
1: So I started my career at Bear Stearns, which in the early 90s was a very entrepreneurial firm, and I got a lot of experience at a young age, probably well before I deserved it, in a firm like that that was not as deep or or as well established as a firm like Goldman Sachs. And I ran through a bunch of different jobs in investment banking, but a lot of them were in the capital markets part of the business, mostly in the high yield business and the loan business. So I had a background in leverage credit. Goldman Bear was S- deep there. Bear was deep there. Bear had a yeah. real expertise there. One of the things I learned, particularly in my early years working in leverage finance, is the ability to analyze companies, really looking at income statements, balance sheets, cash flow statements. And understanding how the financial statements work and how companies make money, what the issues are, what the competitive threats are, and really that analytical background on company performance served me very well. I worked there until 2000, and then I came to Goldman Sachs in 2000. Actually, David Solomon, who I now work for as the CEO of the firm, came to the firm a year earlier and said to me, I think you'd like coming here. I think you'd like the firm. I think it'd be a firm you'd really enjoy and and learn a lot, professional and executive, in, in coming here. And so I ultimately made the switch and I came over. And I would say my background at Bear was quite helpful because I was pretty entrepreneurial. I was pretty skilled at understanding markets and had spent a lot of time looking at companies and I was pretty able to analyze companies. And I had a reasonably good experience dealing with clients at an early age. I was given responsibility to interact with clients, to own client relationships and to be in a position where I had to be the interface between the firm and a client at a relatively young age. And so I had that experience.
0: You weren't just in the back office, crunching numbers and doing that.
1: I was, I was more in the front <laughs> office before I probably deserved to be in the front office. But again, at Bear Stearns, you need to have more people in that scope. So it was good background. When I came to Goldman Sachs, I learned a lot, first of all, about covering big companies, because Bear Stearns really would have focused more on smaller companies. And I learned a lot about working on teams. I would say Bear Stearns had more of a sole proprietorship kind of model where if you were the banker, you kind of brought in the business, you prosecuted the business, you did a lot of it yourself. It wasn't a particularly fulsome team approach. And Goldman is all about covering companies on a team basis. And that really was a key learning for me. And I learned a lot about how to swarm a company with a broad swath of opportunities and capabilities of a firm like Goldman Sachs
0: demystify for us the role of president and COO. It's a very lofty signing title. What does it mean on a day-to-day basis? Tell us a little bit of what your typical week might look like.
1: So I've been in this job about a year. The way I think about it, I actually think those two titles are somewhat different. And I think about the job as chief operating officer first and president second. And what I mean by that is my role right now really is to first learn the firm and understand the inner workings of the firm across the different complexities of all the businesses that we're in and the new initiative that we're embarking upon, and to be valuable in trying to lead the firm and making sure that we execute against the existing businesses and the new priorities. And so that's a really operationally intensive job, thus the chief operating officer component. The president job really comes into play more on an external basis, where you are out with clients, with governments, with regulators, and other external constituencies, where that title has real resonance in your position in the firm is important to that constituency. And they like the title president. And that bestows on you a notion of being at the top of the firm. Inside the firm, people don't really care about the title president. They care about the title chief operating officer if you're actually doing the job that way. And so I tend to try to really lean in to the divisions and to the new initiatives and see if I can be of value and help to making things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen because of the role that I play and because of my knowledge of what's happening around the firm.
0: So when you talk about the COO job, you talk about executing, making sure things are happening. How do you do that, which is not inconsequential in a firm of the size and scope, and make sure that we're executing on those larger strategic objectives too, which involve a fair amount of change and change management?
1: One of the things that we've started doing is actually getting together the key leaders in the different divisions together on a regular basis, biweekly, and really parsing the execution priorities between existing businesses and new initiatives and actually being very purposeful about delineating the two. We're not taking our eye off the existing businesses because those franchises are strong, they're important, and they need to be managed and cared for in a very important way, versus this new initiatives, which really are longer range, kind of J-curve investment opportunities, where you can have a longer term horizon and you can start to really think about things over a three, five, seven, ten five, seven, 10-year period. That meeting is really run in a bifurcated fashion, where we think about existing business, new opportunities, where there's synergies between the two. And I really spend probably half my time on the existing businesses and half my time on the new initiatives. And we try to go through in a pretty systematic fashion where we are making progress and where we have problems and deficits and where I've got to spend more time on a weekly or biweekly or monthly basis.
0: One thing you've talked a lot about is breaking down silos inside the firm, which doesn't sound like the most glamorous work, but explain why that's important to you and how you're going about doing it. Well,
1: on the first day in our job, David, Stephen, and I put out a memo that talked about one Goldman Sachs and really focusing on client-centricity, clients at the core of everything that we do and serving our clients as one firm, which, again, sounds pretty simple and basic, and you would think we'd be doing that for 150 years. And there's an ethos in the firm to do that. But what we observed was that the organizational structure of the firm was getting in the way of the ethos of the firm in terms of prosecuting that in the right way. So we think de-siloing the firm really is about bringing everybody together to solve clients' problems, or our own problems for that matter, whether it's in a technology platform context or any other context, and bringing the best of what we have to offer together across all the different disciplines of the firm to get to the best answer. And that seems, again, quite simple, but there's a lot of organizational calcification, if you will, that we've got to cut through to do that. You're right, it's unglamorous. But I think what we have as a real strength at the core is we have a culture and an ethos where people want to behave that way. Having been at Bear Stearns, I've only been at one of the firm in my life, Bear Stearns would never have been able to achieve this. I think a lot of firms in our industry wouldn't be able to achieve this. If we're really successful in doing this, we are going to be differentiated because I think we have a cultural basis to want to work together, to respect each other, to work in the notion of getting the best answer for our clients and to be one firm. I think that is our cultural underpinning, but we've got to sort of unleash that capability and break down the silos in doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, anyone who's spent time with clients knows the client doesn't care how we're organized. They just want to That's right. Solution to their problems. So you and David and the leadership team have set out certain goals. How are you measuring progress against those goals? And how do you yourself see progress?
1: One of the things we're really trying to do is think long term in the context of the goals that we're setting out, because it's very easy in a public company where you've got quarter to quarter earnings pressure to be falling into short termism in terms of thinking about what kind of progress we're making. How is the stock trading? What were our earnings last quarter? What are they going to be this quarter? And of course, we have to live with some of those pressures. You can't avoid them. But I would say, in answer to your question, we're really setting a three-year running kind of three-year path as we think about our progress. So our business planning is now done on a three-year basis. It used to be on a one-year basis. So all the business units now think about their business opportunity, their investment spend, their returns, their margins, their sales growth, et cetera, all on a three-year basis. And every one of those initiatives that I talked about that we're focused on has at least a three-year plan. In some cases, it's a five-year plan or even longer plan. Our credit card joint venture with Apple is a much longer than three-year plan because it takes a long time to build a business like that from scratch. Our transaction banking platform that we're building and we'll launch in the first quarter of next year will have a much longer than three-year horizon. So you can measure investment banking on a three-year plan and say, okay, we have an existing book of business, an existing franchise. How are we making it better over the next three years? On a new venture, it may be a 5- or 10-year build. And so we're setting out metrics. We're very focused on creating KPIs and metrics and making sure that we've got real mathematical grounding where we can hold people accountable. But we're also trying to give people the space to make adjustments, be creative, make some mistakes, fail, readjust, and go forward. And I think that's an important thing. That balance is an important thing that we're constantly tinkering with to try to make sure we get right.
0: Talk a little bit about working with David. You've worked together for a long time, both at Bayer and at Goldman for the last 19 years. How's that working relationship evolved over time? I mean, inside the firm, obviously externally, you present a united front, but behind the scenes, I know you have different views from time to time and you're not afraid to express those. How's that changed with these new jobs?
1: David's an extraordinary professional. I've worked with him for most of my career. I've learned a lot from him. He's been a mentor to me, and so I really have great respect for what he brings to the table. We are different. We're pretty complementary in the way we operate. I think we see things similarly in many respects, but we have different talents and skills that we bring to the table. So we do complement each other. And so you're right. We will usually present United Front, but that doesn't mean we always started from a position of unity. But one of the things he and I feel quite strongly about is if you're leading an organization, whether it's a group of people, a business, a firm, in the case now, Leading means creating a real path where people want to follow, which means when you ultimately get to a place where you agree on where the path is, you should be united. There shouldn't be a lot of gray matter. You can disagree. You can kick and scream and fight behind closed doors. But when you come out, you set a direction. People want to see and feel that there's conviction and unanimity in the leadership behind that direction. So we're pretty good at having our disagreements behind closed doors. And there's not tons of disagreements. I mean, we, we generally have a similar worldview and we generally want to get to the same place. And we generally have the same ethos about how we're going to get there. But we may have different perspectives on how to get there, who the right people are to get us there in some cases. And so we generally handle those things more behind closed doors. And we come out and we agree, you know, one side or the other is going to prevail. And then we get behind whatever side prevails and we go.
0: You spend a lot of time, obviously, as COO, running the business day to day. You also managed to travel a lot, you still see a lot of clients. What international markets do you most focus on right now?
1: I remember when I used to talk to Hank Paulson a lot about how he spent his time, all the way back to when he was running banking and before he ran the firm. And one of the things that he said to me that still sticks with me that I try to keep in my mind as I think about my travel schedule today is you have to look at where the big markets are where we can have a real impact because that's still the 80/20 in the Equation of where you can really move the needle and that's still obviously the United States across the whole of the United States It's clearly the UK. It's clearly Germany France and the group of countries on the continent and the the major economies in Europe And increasingly it's China and Japan if I had to categorize where I'm spending the vast majority of my time. It's the G7 and China and in essence most of my time is really spent trying to make sure our operations in the key countries are working well and that our clients are feeling our presence and that I'm meeting the right people and I've got relationships with the key people that matter externally, whether it's in the government or with corporations or private equity firms or large institutions. And then in the case of a country like China, it's really trying to figure out where are we going to go and how are we going to build a business and how are we going to get ourselves to be more important, more relevant in that marketplace inside the country and then obviously connecting to our clients globally and connecting them back into China.
0: So you've spent a lot of time in China, both as someone running the investment bank, but also as president COO. What is it that most business people or most Americans who have a casual acquaintance of China miss when they're not spending enough time there?
1: Oh, I think it's a multi-layered country. And, you know, I feel like you walk out of a meeting and that the real meeting happens after you leave. You know, when you walk into the meeting and you meet with a group of Chinese executives or government leaders and it's a translated meeting and then you leave and then they go have another meeting and that's the meeting you're not in and that's, so that's you the need, meeting you want to know that's about that's the meeting you want to know about and so i think the key is to figure out how to know about what happened in that meeting right which there's no substitute for going there a lot and getting a sense for the nuance and building relationships where you can actually get some sense for what's happening when you're not in the room what i experience when i go to china is it's translated it's very formal there's not a lot of nuance to the meeting it's a pretty staged environment and then there's another set of discussions that really is where the rubber meets the road And so I think if you go there a few times, you feel like, oh, I had a good meeting. Every meeting is a good meeting. You're not going to have a bad meeting in China because the Chinese don't like having bad meetings. But there's plenty of things that happen in a meeting that wouldn't be to your benefit if you didn't know about what was going to happen next. And so I think the key is to get to a sense where a place where you've got enough of a relationship with somebody where they can give you the nuance behind the scenes in the room you're not in.
0: What major geopolitical issues are you most focused on now? Obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. It's very busy right now. But what do you think will have the biggest impact on Goldman over the longer term?
1: If you think about the next five to 10 years, if you call that the longer term, the U.S.-China relationship in the trade discussion, but also more broadly, just the broader relationship, you know, how it unfolds, particularly given the Trump administration's policy, which is obviously a departure from prior U.S. policy towards China. I think that far and away has the most global implications for a firm like Goldman Sachs. It has implications for our business in China, obviously, but it has implications for how multinational companies and governments react to that relationship. If I had to pick one, that would be it. The second, I think, is Brexit, which on the surface is not as big an issue but it has ramifications for the whole of the European Union where we have significant operations. We've obviously got 6,000 or so people in the UK and a big presence on the continent. I think Brexit is the beginning of a reset of the relationship broadly in the European Union where 35% of our business by most measures resides. And so that is very important to Goldman Sachs. And I think to our clients, I would say that'll be the second big geopolitical event that we're watching carefully.
0: So John, in the course of your banking career, you became a counselor to some of the most successful CEOs really in the world. Do you miss giving that kind of advice or do you still get an opportunity to do it? And does that background help you in this current job?
1: If I look back at my career, the most fun that I've had is really sitting with CEOs and boards and chewing through difficult problems, whether it's an M&A problem or a capital markets problem, or in some cases, a personnel or other problem that doesn't relate to a transaction. Counseling clients is really one of the great joys of this business. And so yes I don't get to do it as often as I used to do it and I do miss that aspect of it But one of the great benefits of this job is by virtue of my position I actually get to interact with more CEOs and more presidents and more executives in important positions than even I did in my prior job And so I still get to spend time counseling and now the counseling is a little bit different. It's not as much on transactions or deals. It's more on macro issues and on things that the CEO or the executive is wrestling with. So I actually find some of those relationships become even more intimate than they would have been when I was more of an advisor on a transaction. So that's been quite beneficial. And sometimes I turn the tables now and I ask questions, really picking their brains on how they run their businesses. So I've had numerous conversations with executives about how they run their human capital organization, how they run their technology organization, how they think about siloization in their firms, how they think about brand, how they think about technology disruption, content, et cetera. I found that the counseling I was doing has actually served as a pretty good baseline for me to sometimes turn the tables and ask the questions that I know I was being asked in my prior life as a banker.
0: People talk a lot about the culture of Goldman Sachs. It's hard to understand it unless you've worked here but you've been outside the firm, you've now been inside the firm for a long time, almost two decades. What are the things you're most proud of inside the culture and where are some places that you think we need to change?
1: What I love about our culture is it's fundamentally grounded in respect, lots of communication and a collaborative perspective. People come to work here because they want to be surrounded by very, very talented people that are desirous of doing important things in the world and they wanna collaborate with those people to get to better outcomes. We take that for granted because that's just the way Goldman Sachs has been for a lot of years. Most other firms have a hard time assimilating and assembling that kind of a culture. So we've got tremendous advantages. I think back to your question on siloization and bringing the firm together, one of the things that we've suffered from in the last 10, 12, 15 years, maybe the crisis really accentuated this and the notion that we had to play defense coming out of the crisis, as we have gotten more balkanized, we do operate in more individual units. The firm has gotten bigger. It's more complex. We're in more businesses. It's harder to bring people together. It's harder to tap into the vein of that collaborative ethos and actually pull it together and go do the thing that I think everybody wants to do. So I think we have work to do there, but we've got a lot of raw material to work with that I think gives us great advantage.
0: You were running the investment bank for a while. You've made the transition now. What's been the biggest surprise going from the business, the investment banking division, to the executive office?
1: Investment banking is a great business, and it's done very, very well for a long period of time. But the firm is a lot more complex than investment banking. And so for me, the hardest part of this transition has undoubtedly been getting my arms around the complexity of the firm, just the raw breadth of businesses that we're in, of people that I have to get to know, that I have to learn to both trust and have them trust me, you know, it's just a very, very broad, complex firm, and I'm getting my arms around it slowly but surely, but it takes a while, and I think you can't rush it. I think you have to just experience it, and you have to go through the paces, and so I'm almost a year into that, but I think in year two and three, I'll feel even more comfortable than I feel today, and that's far and away the the toughest part of the transition. I think the thing that I've really been heartened by is I've yet to find a part of the firm where I don't see really high-quality people and a really high-quality organization. We've got balkanization, we've got challenges we've talked about in this discussion, but we start with a base of extraordinary people. You go all over the world, you see people in every nook and cranny of the firm. It's a young, energetic, ambitious, mobile group of people that want to work together, want to collaborate, and want to win, and want to make Goldman Sachs as good as it can be, and want to be important in the world and relevant in the world. And that, again, is a great advantage, and we take it for granted, but I think it's a great advantage.
0: When we talked about your career earlier, we started after college, but you got a liberal arts education at one of the great yeah. liberal arts colleges in America. Talk about how the liberal arts education basically can be applied to a career in finance, as you have.
1: This feels like a planted question because I'm a huge proponent of liberal arts education. Although I did say once on air that if I could come back, I would have been an engineer. That was well, more, easy to say. That, that, <laughs> was, that more spoke to my insecurity of not understanding all the platform work that we're doing and uh, not knowing the engineering as well as I wish I did. My view is you can learn the technical stuff when you're in a job and you need to learn it. If you're smart, you've got a good brain, you're willing to read and listen and, and absorb, you can learn lots of technical details. Harder things to learn are how to solve problems, how to communicate, how to engage, how to be well-read, how to understand what's going on in the world, You know, how to have a perspective and a point of view. That's a harder thing to learn. And so I think that what a liberal arts education does for you is it gives you that broad aperture To want to learn what's going on in the world and to have a lot of breadth and then trying to figure out how to assimilate all that information and distill it down into something that's communicable to somebody else is a really important skill in this world. I mean, I find more and more I'm in settings where I have to take a briefing memo and then go speak for three minutes on something that was seven pages and distill it down into something that can be understood by another party. And that really calls on my liberal arts background. There's no engineering in that. That's just kind of learning how to read, analyze, assimilate, thinking about the problem, and then communicate it in an intelligent fashion. And so I think the education of a liberal arts student is a big advantage to lots of things, but particularly finding ways to communicate effectively. So I went to Middlebury College, where I spent four wonderful years. I was an English major. I was just up there recently and had a wonderful day. And Middlebury prepared me exceptionally well for a career on Wall Street.
0: What advice would you have other than... Study your liberal arts in college. Would you have for young people just starting out their careers here at Goldman or or elsewhere?
1: Find good mentors. All organizations like Goldman Sachs will have a formal mentoring program, and there's no harm in participating in those programs. But a lot of the mentoring that I think you gain in a career is informal. It's somebody who takes an interest in your career, somebody that you work with or run into and form some relationship and you take mutual interest. And then when you find a mentor or a couple mentors, you have to invest in that relationship. I think it's easy to say, oh, I have a mentor, but if you talk to them once a year, you're not really getting much out of that relationship. I always felt like if I had somebody who was taking an interest in me and I felt like they really could help me, I needed to invest back and actually help them understand what I'm dealing with, what my ambitions are, what my insecurities are, what I'm trying to improve upon. And then I get more out of the relationship. That far and away to me is the most important thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is ask a lot of questions. It's very easy when you come in as a young person from a prestigious college or university to think you have a lot of answers and you're well-educated and you understand things and that you're expected to know, right? The expectation of Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or any other prestigious firm is you come from a great school, you're expected to know. And in the early part of your career in particular, you need to ask those so-called dumb questions to get them out of the way to make sure you really have the grounding. Because once you get to be more senior, you are expected to know. But as a young person, you're not expected to know. So that's an important thing. And then over time, I mean, in my job, I ask tons of questions. There's lots of things people think I know that I don't know. And I think one of the things that I'm pretty good at is asking. I'm unafraid of somebody saying, well, he's president or chief operating officer of the firm. How does he not know that? I better ask the question in the first six months because in year three, everyone is gonna assume he's got his arms around that. And so I a little I,
0: late I, to figure that out. A little late.
1: I don't think you can ever stop learning. The people that I most respect in the world are constantly asking questions and constantly learning and constantly growing. And I think that's a great skill to have. So at the young age, you wanna do it because you need that grounding. And as you get more senior, you, you keep evolving and keep learning and the world is dynamic. I mean, there's a lot more technology disruption today than there ever has been before. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. When I was running investment banking five or six years ago, it seemed a lot easier than it is today. And so you have to constantly evolve and be on top of the trends.
0: All right, well, if you want to ask questions, you could be a podcast host, so. Maybe
1: maybe if this job doesn't work out, I can go. <laughs> Although I think most, most of our shareholders and our employees are hoping it does work out.
0: You don't have a lot of time outside the office. But you have to allocate it very effectively. How do you think about work-life balance, so important to some of our employees, not just our young employees, but certainly some of our most senior professionals, too? How do you think about that issue, and how do you handle it yourself?
1: I think it's a really important issue, not just for the young generation, as you rightly point out, but for any of us that want to have a long-term career. And I still consider myself one of those people that wants to have still a longer-term career. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And I think first of all, you need to take care of yourself and you need to have a balanced life. Otherwise you aren't gonna make it as long as you think you're gonna make it because in the early days, it feels like you could go forever. And so I think it's important to have balance in your life for that perspective. I also think you're more interesting to people clients, your own employees, and anybody else you come into contact with if your life is richer and fuller than just Goldman Sachs or just whatever your employer is. And so I've worked hard to make sure, first of all, that my life is more enjoyable and more balanced and more full. And I also think that suits me in my career in terms of being better rested, more able to kind of come to work charged up, feeling really good about what's going on in my home life and therefore feeling less distracted or stressed out about that when I come to work. And I think hopefully being more interesting to talk to when I talk to people inside or outside the firm because I have six children, I can talk about my kids and the time I spend with my kids. I travel a lot, I read a lot, You know, I have lots of outside interests and it's important to be able to talk about those outside interests. Otherwise, you're really just defaulting to macroeconomic policy and Goldman Sachs, which goes as far as it goes. But you know, in the third, fourth, and fifth interaction, clients kind of want to go into the next more interesting levels of human interaction. The way I deal with balance in my own life is... I actually schedule time with my kids, which on the one hand sounds depressing, that you have to actually schedule it. On the other hand, if I don't do it, it doesn't happen. So I have dinner with my kids many nights. I have six kids in total, four kids under the age of 10. And the four under 10, I can actually get home at six o'clock and have dinner with them from six to seven or 730 and put some of them to bed. And then I can go on to a client dinner or another dinner outside later. And so I have two dinners. I'll have a little bit of peanut butter and jelly, and then I'll have a <laughs> steak tartare later on. <laughs> And I find that that time, first of all, it's good for my relationship with my kids, but it's really good for me. I actually reset, I unwind a little bit, I get a little bit of perspective and then I go back out and I go back into Goldman Sachs mode. And that balance just as a microcosm is important to me. And then on the weekends, I'm really kind of an Uber driver, driving my kids around to different sporting events or other cultural or social events that they're involved in. And, and I find that's really a great time with my kids. I can watch them on the sports field. Sometimes I coach them, sometimes I'm just an observer. One of my daughters does acting and other things in the arts. And I love watching her do that and watching her go through the stresses of learning how to get up on the stage. And, you know, it's really valuable time and it resets me for the week ahead.
0: Well, we better let you get home to those kids.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it, Jake.
0: That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you.
2: This podcast was recorded on September 9, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.